Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have someone that has done a lot for the ecosystem, for the entrepreneurial ecosystem, and, and more particularly for the ecosystem here in, in New York City. Has uh, founded multiple companies, exited many of them, and uh, I can't wait to, to really hear more about it. So, Kevin, Wright, welcome to the Dealmaker Show. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I guess how many companies have you built and exited by now? Well, I've I've started a lot of different companies. Most of them are still going. The ones I've exited are Business Insider, uh, sold about three years ago uh, to Axel Springer, uh, Guilt Group, which I sold also about three years ago to uh, Saks, to HBC. And then for nine years, I was the president and CEO of uh, DoubleClick, and then we exited that as well. The other companies I've started, uh, of which there are five or six others, are still going, and uh, some are public. I mean, I, I don't consider Mongo an exit, although it's it's actually public, so technically it's liquid. But you know, we're still a part of it, and I'm still the chairman, and we're still building it. And I think it'll be independent for a long time. And the Got others it. are private. The others are private. So I guess I guess a double click is the is the company. And by the way, that's that's really amazing. And I'm sure that the the learnings that you've gotten from those is is remarkable. And we'll we'll get into that in in a little bit. But it, you started at a double click and you know as, as you were pointing to and and from from my understanding that's your your first significant exit right so you you joined the team when there were 20 employees so so could you talk to us a little bit more about this experience yes uh it was an extraordinary experience i mean i joined there was 15 to 20 people it was very early uh i spent several months as the cfo then i i became president where I managed really most of the company for four years. Uh, then I became the CEO for the next five years, and then we sold the company. And what was extraordinary about it is that four years after uh, I started, we had 2,000 employees in 25 countries. So, you know, just an incredibly intense uh, expansion. That, and the reason, and that expansion resulted in DoubleClick to this day being the dominant ad technology company. Um, two years after the company started 18 months after I got there, we took the company public. So uh, all in the middle of all this, and it was worth $12 billion, you know, four years after we started. So a remarkable four year period. And then the internet collapsed. We spent uh, two and a half years. I was CEO doing round after round of layoff. Uh, we lost 70% of our clients, which I don't recommend. Uh, the st stock price went from $130 to $5 a share. So very, very tough time but it wiped out all of our competitors. We actually gained tremendous market share during that downturn. And then we resulted, came out of it with about 30% profit margins, 60% of the world's ad serving market and a truly dominant position. Got it. So, I mean, you, you were pointing to the tremendous growth in four years. So, so what was the, um, the, the, the shareholding team and, and then also the, the initial team members, what does that look like and how did that change over time? Yeah, we, um, so there were two founders, Kevin O'Connor and Dwight Merriman, uh, and then and then me. And then, you know, we built up a team, a very, very good team, including David Rosenblatt, who now runs First Dibs, uh, Wenda Millard, who um, now runs a large uh, media marketing agency, uh, you know, a number of fantastic people. Uh, the CFO I hired 
Jeff Epstein became the CFO 10 years later of Oracle. Our head of HR, Brian Skipper, became the head of HR 10 years later at Cisco. Um, so we had people who, even though they had joined a company of 100 people, uh, could scale and were truly very good executives. And that's what made the difference. Otherwise, you can't grow like that. Got it. Got it. I mean, without a doubt, the um, the taking the a company public has a or the perception, you know, has changed a bit. So I guess like from your perspective, like on the operator side, mm -hmm. how, how did you manage that transition from leading a private company to leading a public entity? You know, it depends on the phase. So that in the in the bubble phase in the late 90s, you know, all of us were growing like crazy. And so generally beating our numbers, everything was great. Everyone started feeling better. So, so being public felt like a, a wonderful gift. When your stock price drops and everyone abandons your shares, it feels less exciting. So it really just depends on in what period of time you're at. You know, Mongo went public eight, uh, to 11 months ago, and we've had, you know, a very nice steady run. We went public at $24 a share. It's, uh, you know, probably $65 a share or so today. Numbers have been good. It sort of depends on how you're doing, how predictable your numbers are, and the environment you're in as well. And sometimes it, you're happy to be public and sometimes you're not happy. Yeah, yeah, that makes total sense. So I guess the um, DoubleClick was ultimately acquired by, by Google. Is that right? Yes, yeah, for a little over $3 billion in 2007, 2008. Got it. And how did the acquisition come about? So uh, DoubleClick, first of all, was sold, was public until 2005. And then a private equity firm, Hellman and Friedman, bought the company. And then two and a half years later, the market kept getting better and better. And so uh, they ran an auction between Microsoft, Yahoo, and, and Google, and Google uh, paid the most. So it was a big sale, um, and I think a very strategic sale for Google, and I think they're still happy today to own that company. Got it, got it, got it. So, so I guess after the, the acquisition of, of DoubleClick, you go on to, to launch Alicorp, right? And, yeah. and at this time... Uh, the concept of venture builder was almost non-existent. I mean, we're talking about right. 2007. So how, yeah. how did this idea come about? You know, it really, it wasn't necessarily a strategy. What happened was I was working with Dwight Merriman, who had been one of the co-founders and the CTO of DoubleClick. And we had, you know, would have an idea for a company. And so we'd start it. And we'd realized that in the very beginning, sometimes we felt we had extra time, depending on what role we played. And so we could start another company. Well, we had more than one idea. So we said, why don't we do that? When we started Mongo, you know, I didn't have that much to do because for a year and a half, it was really a development project. It was only engineers building a database. And so I could start Gilt uh, and I could start Business Insider. And in Business Insider's case, it had to have a CEO right away. I wasn't the right CEO. So brought on Henry Blodgett, who was amazing. So all of a sudden I realized I could have three companies and Dwight would play a role. I would play a role. I was chairman of all of them. Uh, and founder, and um, realized that we could add a lot of value to the CEOs we brought on board. And so really just continue that ever since. I took a break for three years because I stepped in to be CEO of Gilt when it was going through a crazy growth phase. I felt like I was the right person to step in. But since then, I've been starting uh, more companies and you know have started Zola and Workframe and Nomad and more on the way. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's been a remarkable time in the last 10, 15 years just to start companies. Uh, so I've been very happy with it. Alicorp, you've uh, co-founded and, and, as you was pointing to, <clears throat> become the chairman of, 
of companies like Business Insider, Guild Group, Nomad Health, Workframe, Sola.com, MongoDB. So obviously all of them massive success stories and, 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 and companies that have raised hundreds of millions. So uh, <clears throat> this company is like in the process of really coming up with these initiatives, right? Yeah. So what does that look like? And is there a specific framework that you typically follow to understand what options make, may, may make the most amount of sense to pursue? You know, in some ways, there's not really a specific framework because the things I do are so radically different. You know, obviously, you can't have companies more different than MongoDB, Business Insider, Gilt, and, and DoubleClick. They're, they're far, four different corners of the Internet. Um, so I'm just always thinking, I'm passing my life thinking about what are the problems? And sometimes there are problems in front of you that, that the average person doesn't recognize where something takes too long. It's too inconvenient. It's too expensive. I mean, if we were sitting here in 2007 and I said to you, I, how do you feel about your, your database choices? You would have said, oh, my God, you know, they're so expensive. You know, other, other, other software costs have come down, but the Oracle database is still really expensive. And so we just had to think, you know, did it have to be that expensive? Could we do something better, faster, cheaper? And the answer was yes. If you were reading, uh, you know, the Wall Street Journal at the time, they hardly updated their site during the day. And so I remember thinking, that doesn't make sense. That's a problem. I want to know what's going on during the day. And right. so the business center was faster. And, and, there was, and we forget now, but even in 2007, there wasn't really a place you could buy you know, discount merchandise, good quality discount clothing online. That just didn't really exist. Uh, and so that was guilt. And so uh, each sector is different. I'm always thinking about it and thinking, is there a big opportunity where I have a clear vision of a product? that is going to be different from what's out there. And that, and, but that's a judgment call and you've still got to build it and make it happen. Absolutely. So I guess now like taking a look at the landscape, are there like particular sectors that uh, you think are, have a, like an unbelievable amount of potential that you're following closely at this point? Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the only thing is that I am more bottoms up. So I see an opportunity and it could be in a good sector, it could be in a bad sector, but I'm looking at that opportunity because there's some big uh, areas like education where I think is a big opportunity, but I haven't had the right idea. And there are some areas like wedding registries, which is Zola. E-commerce is not necessarily a area where it's easy to make money, but I had a very, very good idea there um, that has worked extraordinarily well. It just wouldn't have worked for other verticals. Um, so I, in general, financial services, healthcare, and education are still three of the biggest areas where there are startups, but there's still many, many large companies giving uh, with bad products, and there'll be opportunities for people. So those are three good sectors. Got it. So I mean, typically ideas, they take time to incubate. So how do they incubate within the Alicorp ecosystem? So in a way, there's not a lot. I don't have a long incubation period. So I, if I have an idea... I will generally decide within the next 30 days, you know, maximum 60 days, whether I'm going to do it or not. And so if I decide I'm going to do it, I never put together a financial model, even though I am a former CFO. I really have to just understand the consumer, whether that's a B2B or a, a consumer consumer. But I just have to understand what's going through that, that, that person's mind. What are the challenges? What are the problems? So it really involves a lot of interviews of people. Like before starting Zola, talking to lots of brides and understanding what went well for them when they got married, what didn't go well and understanding the pain points. And got so that's it. what I, that's what I want to figure out is wh where is the problem and do I have a clear idea of how I'm going to solve it? And sometimes it's hard to solve. And so you think, I don't know if I can do that. 
And sometimes you think, you know, I can totally build that. And then it's just, once I make the decision, it's hiring the team. Got it. So right before making the decision, is there one specific question that you always ask yourself? No, I just, three things. It has to be a big market. So it's an interesting enough for me. I have to feel like there is a billion dollar opportunity here. You're not always going to get there, but you know, if it works, it's that big. Um, and two, do I have a clear, clear vision of the product? Uh, that can be built, and then three, you know, do, is, there, is there any constraint? Is there some reason why I can't build this? And if I if it passes those three, I'm ready to go. Oh, though, I should I should say I have to be intellectually interested in it because I'm gonna I may be involved with this for ten years. And so, for example, I'm bored of ad tech now. It's not that it's a bad sector. I just don't want to do anything there. I did it already. So no matter how good your idea is, I would never do anything in ad tech right now. Got it. Makes sense. So I guess uh, once you decide, let's say, you know, you make the decision, you're going to go forward with something, with an initiative, you build a team, you fund yeah. the seed stage cycle of the business. Yeah. How do you determine what is the right data to track in order to understand the health and the progress of the business over time? Oh, you know, it, that depends so much on the business. You're really trying to see, do consumers like it? And so really, are they coming back? You know, if they're B2B, are they happy? Are your first five customers very happy? Um, and if it's consumers, you should see traffic growing without marketing. Uh, and if it doesn't happen, and I've launched many products as part of companies that haven't worked, and you can see that after four months, it's just not growing. They don't really love it. You thought it was a good idea, but it's not. They don't think it's that great. And that, that happens. happens. So uh, just like really quickly on that, Kevin, uh, talking about like not spending on marketing, are there like a specific distribution channels that that you think are like the most effective ones at the beginning that are like more organic? Yeah, I mean, you're going to start by sending it out to everyone you know that makes sense. You're going to do a little bit of PR. You know, I might buy some keywords just to drive a little bit of traffic there. But, you know, if you if it's a consumer site, if, if 10,000 people have been to your site, which is actually tiny in the scheme of life, that's plenty for them to either decide to come back, to tell their friends. You know, it should be growing even from there. Uh, and, you know, Business Insider never spent $1 in marketing in the history of the company. And now probably is getting close to 200 million uniques. Wow. Just wow. because people liked it and they came back. And so guilt, by the way, got to $100 million in revenue with very, very little marketing. Got it. So I guess, uh, Kevin, is there like a specific timeline within the Alicorp universe that it takes for a company to kind of like gain its own shape until you guys let that company fly on its own? But look, it's in some ways, it's on its own in the beginning. It's an independent company. It's, it's not really part of Alicorp. I've funded it. There, let's say yeah. there's a CEO in place. Let's say we launch with an eight-person team, which is probably the average. Uh, then um, it's now an independent company. I happen to have a big shareholding. Uh, but you know, it's on its own. The CEO is in charge of the company. I'm the chairman. Uh, and we're off and running. And so it doesn't sit within Alicorp. It each company has to feel like they own their own destiny because there's nothing they can really, you know, a business insider doesn't learn from MongoDB that much. Uh, they're totally different businesses. So, you know, uh, Henry never spent any time with the MongoDB people. Got you know, he spent time with me, but not with them. They're separate. Okay. So I guess, uh, you know, to that aspect, after building so many successful startup teams, what are typically the patterns that you see on those that you would like or you typically to recruit a, at a, let's say, co-founder level or management level to these teams? Yeah, look, there are many different profiles that can work. You know, the profile for the Mongo CEO in the beginning had to be deeply technical without 
being very marketing oriented. In general, I'd like the CEO to have the skill base that I think is the most important for that company. So Business Insider, it had to be a great journalist slash writer. For Mongo, it had to be a technical person. For Zola, it had to be a product person. So that's what I'd really like as the CEO, because you don't have every skill, but you might as well have the core skill. Um, later on, you know, when you get to be much bigger, now Mongo can have someone who has to be somewhat technical, but not a technical genius, because sales and marketing become more important for an enterprise software sales company 10 years in than the initial technology. So that can evolve over time. But, you know, there, there are CEOs who are introverts, there are CEOs who are extroverts. But one of the skills that's the most important is I have to feel like this person can hire, can recruit, hire, and manage people. You know, the market is so competitive for people that uh, any employee who's any good can work at our company, but he has 10 other offers. He's going to want to, or he, he or she are gonna, has to want to work for that CEO. And they're going to do reference calls. So the most valuable thing I can hear is that this person worked for X, XY company before, and the team loved working for him or her. Right, right. Got it. And I guess the, the, you know, when you were pointing to the fact that you create those companies and then you eventually put yourself there as the, as the chairman. So how do you really, and especially for those that are listening, that are looking at their corporate structure and perhaps creating boards, how do you define a healthy relationship that is chairman and, and CEO relationship? Yeah, I feel, you know, and I, work with probably 12 different CEOs right now, and I feel very good about the relationships. And so the key is always, I think, no different than a good manager, which is, you know, you need to spend enough time so that you know what's going on as chairman. Then, I, what, between my various companies, I, I have to figure out where do I add value? Sometimes I don't add any value because I don't know as much as the CEO does about some specific area, and I need to stay out of the way. Uh, but sometimes I think I can add some value and some perspective, and that can be in hiring, that can be in raising money. That can be on some bigger strategic questions. The ideal role is, you know, the, the CEO cannot talk to anyone about his or her relationships with his senior team. That's just, who do you talk to? And so he can, you know, he can talk to me. And so I need to know them all a little bit so I can say, oh, you're, you're, you're having some issues with Mary, you know, who's the CFO. Um, let's talk about that and think about ways to handle it. And I think that's a very important sounding board for CEOs. And then an important part is raising money. Once a year, you're raising money. And that entire process, I've done a lot of. No CEO will have done it as much as I have. And so I can add perspective and relationships there. And the other thing that, you know, and I've been on both sides of this, when you're CEO of a company, you're just too close to things. You just can't yeah. help it. You're spending 60 hours a week. You believe in it. And I can be just slightly more removed. And that's that can be a strength. And when I was CEO... I found the same thing happened to me. I got too close to it, and, and my very good board members sometimes would remind me of uh, something I wasn't seeing. I was just too close. Got it. Got it. So let's uh, dig a little bit deeper on the on the fundraising that you were uh, mentioning. So you've raised for your companies over seven hundred million at this point. Is is that right? Yes. Yes. So how how do you typically approach the fundraising process, Kevin? So. There's a couple things that I think are important. One is, now let's start, let's say we're N minus six. N is when you're going to run out of money. So you're six months ahead of time. You want to be having a, a light deck ready, and you want to be meeting with some VCs, telling them that you're not raising money. These are, these are dry runs. You're just giving them an update on the company. You're feeling them out. You're going to get a sense of whether they're very excited 
or just really right. not that excited. And you start to hear all the questions and then you know, gosh, I really didn't answer that very well. So I need to work on that. So then by the time you're at N minus four, you want to go out and if you need to talk to any strategic players, you need to give them more time. So you definitely want to have those conversations. And if you're ever thinking of the company, uh, selling the company, you need to have those conversations then. Then at N minus three, I'm really going out and I'm going to hit the ground running. The CEO is going to have a week of meetings in San Francisco and a week in New York, probably a total of maybe 12 companies. Hopefully some of them we've already met with in the past, sometimes not. Um, and we're going to go out as many as possible. And you're starting the process and you want to have term sheets about six weeks later. Got it. So two weeks of meetings, then you'll see sometimes all 12 want to keep going. Sometimes only three want to keep going. Uh, I think another important thing is to go out there and if let's say you and I really want to raise eight to 10 million, right. I go out and say that I want to raise six to eight. I want to keep everyone at the table. I don't want people to walk away because they think it's too expensive. It's just like an auction. An auctioneer always starts with a lower price than where he needs to end up. Because right. once you start bidding, you want to win. Yeah. And so I want to bring you in. And the best thing that can happen is I go back to you and I say, you know what? I know I said six to eight, but now I've gotten feedback from everyone. It's really going to be eight to 10. What does that tell you, the VC? This is a hot deal. There's interest. Yeah. There's demand. You want it more now than you wanted it before, not less. Got it. Got it. And, and typically for your companies, Kevin, are we talking about like when you start really the, the fundraising process and, and they're out there, no? like it's this point where you want to bring outside investors, like is that at a, is, does it start at a series A, series B? I mean, it's hard to know what to call these things now, but generally when I've spent 500,000 to 750,000 and we have a team and we have a product, when I go out and that to raise money, we're going to raise three to five million at somewhere between a 10 to 20 million pre. Got it. Got it. So I guess in your in, in the case of of this of these companies, right? So what are the I would say what are the questions that you perhaps say ask yourself or the management teams that lead you to believe that is the right time to actually go out to raise money? Yeah, and we've been by we've been thinking about that from the first day. And so what I'm thinking is, what are the proof points that we are going to have that are going to de-risk it for this investor? So what the one of them is team. So you'd like to have as many of your senior team that makes sense in place. Uh, secondly, hopefully you have a product at that point. Maybe you have a couple customers. You don't have to have a lot of them. But I want to be able to go to you and say, look, you don't have to worry. This is what the product's going to be like. Customers like it. You can talk to them. Right. Uh, the team is in place. Now we're just going to debate how big a market this is. You know, am I going to end up with uh, 100 customers or 1,000 customers? We can have that conversation, but it works. The value yeah. goes up a lot. Once You know, I launched Gilt. We raised money for Gilt right as we were launching. You could see it. You could see the team. You knew how it was going to work. Uh, you knew we could get inventory. We'd answered all those questions. Got it. Got it. And, you know, I guess your case is obviously let's say different than, you know, perhaps those that, uh, that are first timers, you know, and, and they don't have perhaps the, the track record. But I think that you are at a point that is very interesting, right? Because you get to actually select the investors, right? It's yes. like yes. everyone probably when, when they hear that Kevin Ryan is racing from, for a new company, I mean, they're probably fighting to get on your table. So what are the qualities that you really consider the most when determining whether or not you want those people to sit at your table? Yeah, and, and by the way, don't forget, I've done probably 
40 or 50 rounds. And they're rounds where you come from a position of strength. And then there are rounds when you come from a position of weakness that your numbers aren't as good as you thought. So I've had all types of rounds. I've had rounds where we're practically begging for money. And then I've had rounds where everyone wants to do it. Um, so uh, look, when you're selecting, you want someone who's excited about the idea. You want someone who you think you're going to like. I think it's, you know, I don't want the very experienced kind of asshole VC who's going to try and run the company. Right. I don't want that. You know, uh, because at the end of the day, the management is going to run the company. I'm going to spend much more time than this VC is on it. We want their, we want a smart person. We need their money. And we want someone who understands that uh, and believes in what we're doing. Uh, and so in general, I have a lot of VCs involved right now. And I'm actually happy with, you know, just about every VC I'm involved with. There are a lot of perfectly good VCs and I like my relationship with them. That's fantastic. So, I, I mean, you, you've, you have a lot of experience, Kevin, and really when it comes to hyper growth, you are an absolute expert. And, you know, you've seen the downturns as well in, yeah. on the market. I mean, we were talking about that earlier. But I guess now that, you know, there's a lot of people talking about being in the biggest uh, bull market in, in history. Yeah. And, and how, how, how are you seeing, like, perhaps like preparing as, as a hyper growth company towards a potential downturn where capital is more expensive? Yeah, I mean, look, I, first of all, there is a big difference between 1999 and today. There, uh, I'll say this definitively, there is no bubble today at all. Absolutely yeah. not. Now, could the market be overvalued by 25%? Absolutely. You know, will, it, will the market overall pull back at some point? Absolutely. But the definition of a bubble is not the same thing as being slightly overvalued. Definition of a bubble, which happened with tulips and happened with internet stocks, is when the entire sector, the value of the entire sector goes down by 80%. It's, the word bubble is a dramatic thing. And there is zero chance that that is going to happen here. But yeah, I think uh, capital will be tougher to get at some point, no question. Uh, markets will get tougher. Um, but there's a lot of fundamental value being created here. So uh, I, I'm actually not uh, preparing for, for that at all. You know, you need to raise money when you need to raise money and is the right time. Uh, you don't have that much flexibility over it. If you and I do an A round today, we have money for maybe 14, 15 months. You know, we, we can start raising money maybe nine months from now. Worst case, 12 months from now. That's our, that's our margin of flexibility. You can't, you're not going to go raise money three months after you just raise money. So I think it's good to be cautious and to have a little bit more money right now because of all this. But you also, you know, you just got to go forward because if you're going to be super cautious uh, and I'm competing with you, I'll be more aggressive and you'll be behind. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. So I guess, there, there, uh, look, there were, people, there, there were people worried about a downturn two years ago and if they batten down the hatches and decided not to grow, they're much, much smaller than my company now. Yeah, yeah. No, it makes, uh, makes absolute sense, Kevin. And, and I guess, uh, you know, going a little bit more into the, um, into the learning experience, and I guess more on the, on the exit side or acquisition side, for those companies, I mean, that, that, that are part of uh, or that you've uh, created or, or been mm -hmm. part of as, as, as Alicorp, you have so far that have exited Business Insider. Uh, I mean, public uh, publicly stated it's a 450 million exit. Yes. Guild Group 250 million dollar exit. Yeah. So, what did you learn from these two exit stories? Oh, and they were completely different uh, stories, really. You know, Business Insider, we had no intention of selling, and I didn't want to sell the company. Uh, we got an offer that was incredibly compelling. So it was 11 times revenues 
uh, at the end. And so we felt it was the right thing to do at that price to sell the company. Um, Gilt, I absolutely wanted to sell. I didn't feel good about the next couple of years. And I went into that process willing to sell at whatever price the market came back with. Uh, because some people, and there were some people who said, oh, it's lower than you wanted. And it was lower than we wanted. But my, I was convinced that if we waited two more years, the price would even be lower. And by the way, you may have seen that Sachs resold the company they paid $250 million for recently. And I think they sold it for $10 million. Wow. They, gave it, they gave it away. Uh, because unfortunately, I was right that the dynamics in that industry were going in the wrong direction. And there was no way to overcome it. And so I sometimes, you know, look, if, if you have an oil company and if you happen to know that oil prices are going to drop over the next five years, it doesn't matter how good you are. You're better off selling the company now. Right. Right. And so that's that's what I felt. And I guess when, when you get to that point where the, something is telling you that is the, the right time, right, yeah. to, to actually yeah. do the exit. Do you have any any tips or recommendations for for those that are listening in terms of like how can you really optimize for price? What what does that process look like? Look, all you can do is, you know, go out there and do a comprehensive sale process relatively quickly. Try and maintain the fact, the idea or the image that you have other options. Explain to people why if they buy it for $10, they'll, it'll be worth $20. And, and it has to rest on the fact that they will add a lot of value. So even when Saks bought Gilt, they felt like they had all this distribution. They had all these relationships with brands. So they'd be able to do a much better job. Um, and you have to encourage that. And not just try and say, oh, my God, we're so great. You can never do better. They say, look. You know, we tried to do this, but you guys have more experience in this area. Uh, so you can't let your ego get in the way, even if you don't believe it. I, I didn't think they'd be successful, uh, and they weren't. But we had to persuade them that they would be. Got it. You know, it's a, it's interesting. The, the, you know, I, I guess that fundraising, to a certain degree, you have things figured out, or almost uh, things figured out. And, and on, on, on acquisitions, you need to completely figure out things because it's not your idea. It's the idea of whoever is acquiring you. Would you, yeah. would you think that's the way to put it? Yeah, absolutely. No, they have to feel good about it. It's uh, hard. And we didn't, by the way, we didn't have a lot of uh, buyers. We went out to 60 companies and, you know, ended up with one or two people who were interested in it. Uh, so it was, it was a close call. And so I was very happy, but I was very happy to, to sell it. And then Mongo, you know, we've never wanted to sell. Uh, I feel the opposite of guilt at every moment, including today. Uh, I think this the company will be much more valuable five years from now than it will be today. So very happy to be a shareholder for the long term. That's great. That's great. So I guess in, in your career, Kevin, what has been that single event that has given you the greatest learning experience? You know, look, I think the, the, the double-click experience was remarkably formative for me, partly because you know, at the beginning I was 32. And so I was, you know, I was also managing 30, uh, 2000 people when I was 36 or 37. And so that's a big, big step forward. And so that just means that you're making decisions, you know, 50 times a day, uh, and some are right and some are wrong, but that's how you learn, you know, yeah. hiring, firing, acquiring, acquiring good companies, acquiring companies that didn't work out, everything. I felt like I had 40 years of experience condensed into nine years. And that has helped me in all everything going forward since then. Got it. And, you know, the, the, 
it's really remarkable the amount of contribution that you've had to to shape up the ecosystem here in in New York and obviously on the East Coast. But talking about Silicon Alley, right, which yeah. is how people have coined this uh, this this area. Like, how have you seen it change over time since you started? Oh, people people already forget that in 1996, at the beginning of Doublekick, there were no startups in New York City. They were close to zero. And so the first 100 people we hired did not come from startups. There just weren't any. And so now, but th we've counted 34 people came from Doublecheck and have become CEOs of startup companies and the vast majority in New York. You know, just from guilt right now, uh, we have seven companies that are worth more than $100 million started by uh, ex-guilt people. And that's only happened in the last five years. There'll be more as we go along. So uh, it's just so fantastic for me. And I, I know my own companies, this is happening in some other companies as well. But I think Gilt and, and uh, DoubleClick had unusually good people. And most VCs even today will, will tell you that. And they are contributing to the next generation. And uh, the seven Gilt companies already are worth uh, about $2 billion combined. Um, and they'll have, you know, in a way, their children... <laughs> and keep going. And that's what makes for a great ecosystem that Silicon Valley has had for four generations. And New York is still in its first or second generation. I mean, I'm arguably first generation since I was here in 96. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen it as well myself. I remember when I came here a little bit over 10 years ago. I mean, we didn't have this ecosystem of, of VCs and yep. angels and employees that are ready to jump ship and, and, and help you, you know, push things forward. I mean, it's it's really unbelievable how things uh, have, uh, you know, come along. I guess uh, yeah. in your case, uh, Kevin, looking back now uh, and after all this experience that, that you've been able to acquire, I mean, during the good times, during the bad times, which yeah. is where I believe that you really learn. Yes, what absolutely. piece of advice would you give to your younger self about, let's say, fundraising or, or getting your company acquired? You know, look, I, I, let's not forget that, you know, 90% of life is if you have a great asset, everyone wants to buy it. So, you know, the process itself um, is is very different when your company's growing at 50% a year and it's making money, uh, it's all good. So obviously you wanna do the best job you can, but just focus most of your life on creating a big company that has amazing people, that is growing, that's doing the right things, and then the rest of it will take care of itself. Um, there'll be ups and downs, uh, but, in the long run, you, you sort of get what you deserve, uh, even if in the short term there's some, there's some difficult moments that you, that you and I have both seen. Yeah, yeah. And, and just uh, out of curiosity, like, you know, obviously, especially when you're starting out, the, the tough times, you know, are typically 90% of the time. And, yeah. you know, then that 10%, you know, it's really amazing and it carries you through the entire journey. Like, how... how what kind of advice do you give, let's say, the, the teams that you're working with or, or companies that you invest in, like how to deal with these tough moments? Yeah, I mean, I try and remind them that they need to think of it like if you were an athlete. And so let's say you played some sports in high school. You, had, you were on some good teams. You were on some bad teams. Uh, it, it, that happens. And you're not going to let it fundamentally impact. You may be on a bad soccer team, but that doesn't mean you quit soccer. You just try and get on a better team next year. And so you have to think of your career in the same way. You're going to be on 10 different teams. And you play the best you can, but don't let it impact how you feel about the game. You know, the uh, game, and the game is, is tremendous, meaning the startup game is so fun. You know, out of 20 people you and I know who have gone to join startup companies from large 
Procter & Gamble type companies. None of them go back. They don't say, oh, yeah, I want to go back there because it's really safer and better. You know, they don't because they have more responsibility. It's dynamic. Everything matters. It is just the right place for all of us to be today. Right, right. Makes uh, absolute sense. Uh, Kevin, I know that you've been very, very generous with your time. And uh, I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for you. I, I did learn a lot uh, during this time on the show. And and I'm sure that people that are listening are, are, are able as well to get a tremendous amount of value. So I guess that for these people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? For, you know, easiest one is on LinkedIn. Um, uh, but if not, it's going to be uh, just send me an email, uh, Kevin at Alicorp. Fantastic. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show. All right. Thanks. Happy to do it. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.